Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Cameron Hepburn to the podcast. Cameron is Professor of Environmental Economics at the University of Oxford and the London School of Economics and Political Science. And he's Director of the Economics of Sustainability Programme at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. Cameron has published widely on energy, resources and environmental challenges across a wide range of disciplines. And he's a policy advisor on energy and climate to governments and international institutions around the world, including the OECD and the UN. Thank you very much, Cameron, for taking the time to speak today to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure, Fergal. Thank you very much for the invitation. Delighted to be with you. So can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do, Cameron? I know you wear many hats. You teach, you're involved in research, you're involved in policy. Um, Sure. Well, I'm a professor of environmental economics at Oxford University uh, here in the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment and at a group called the Institute for New Economic Thinking. And my background, uh, I've been at the London School of Economics um, and my doctorate was was in economics at Oxford. But before that, I did engineering and law at uh, Melbourne University and um, and also a bit of philosophy as well. So I'm, I'm an unusual economist, I guess, in some respects, although it's fair to say that a lot of environmental and resource economists have a bit of science in their background because it's very helpful when dealing with these big planetary environmental issues. Brilliant, brilliant. And what is what's involved uh, in in terms of the work at at Oxford? I presume a bit of teaching and and some research. And um, I know you've uh, recently launched an initiative, post carbon transition. Yeah, so I teach um, teach master's students here in in various uh, environmentally focused courses. I teach the MBA students on energy markets and do various other lectures for for, um, undergrads and others, as as one does. And research-wise, we've got a group that looks at the economics of sustainability, so a range of environmental and resource issues, um, looking at what, if anything, we're running out of, how we measure wealth, how we... Uh, how natural capital contributes to wealth, um, the role of climate change in um, you know, undermining potentially that, that prosperity and getting into more and more detail the role of the energy system and electricity markets in, in um, the transition to a zero carbon future. Now, and our program, you mentioned on post-carbon transition, as you say, just been launched with the Oxford Martin School. And this is a very exciting program that looks to well it's our starting premise is we're actually on the right track with a lot of the changes we're seeing um, in the climate arena in the sense we're heading the right direction uh, whether it's on energy or agricultural or in other areas but just nowhere near at the pace required you know if we keep going at the current pace we're we're, um, we're on track for three degree warming or above and and potentially um, some really substantially negative economic impacts and loss of life so our challenge is how do we accelerate the progress that we're seeing uh, and how do we make this transition happen within several decades uh, and we've brought together 
uh, a wide range of disciplines. It's just enormously good fun. And Oxford is a great place to do this. So we've got a historian, we've got an experimental psychologist, we've got physicists, mathematicians, economists, scientists, uh, geographers, um, political scientists. So it's a, it's a really wide mix of disciplines and all of us thinking about the same question, but coming at it from a variety of different angles. Uh, and yeah, hugely stimulating program. I guess there's so much going on now that has so many more specialisms, specialisms in these areas and so much research coming out day by day and uh, you know, just even taking you know, uh, climate change in itself. So a uh, fantastic initiative to bring together uh, you know, people from diff- researchers from different domains and this kind of a cross-sectoral approach. And I'd like to touch on some of the questions that you're looking at there maybe a little bit later on in the podcast. I guess uh, an interesting question to start off with um, would be to just get a sense of uh, what, what are your biggest environmental concerns? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, one place to start is to say, well, um, which ones, uh, where's, where's the evidence and which ones might not we be worried about? Uh, and we've just had a look at 60 years worth of data painstakingly assembled on all of the minerals, um, subsoil minerals that we use in producing the goods and services that we enjoy, uh, because periodically um, there are concerns that we're running out of things. And um, you know, economists tend to be relaxed about uh, running out of minerals, but uh, it's not until you look very hard at the data that um, you know whether or not this is a problem. You know, do we have limits to growth or don't we? And our uh, initial analysis suggests that actually we, we, in, in almost every mineral category, we don't have any long-run concerns. There'll be some short-run bumps. Some of the minerals that are being used more intensively to deal with some of the other environmental pressures as it happens might come under um, supply stress, so, you know, cobalt is a classic example. Lithium is not so much of a worry um, now. Probably it was a worry a little while ago. So a place to start is to say we've got enough stuff. That's uh, fine. Then, so wh- where are we in trouble? Well, one of the reasons we've got enough of the minerals is because they've got prices on them and markets that work. And you know, if if you start to have an excess of demand over supply. The price goes up. The price signals several things. It signals to uh, producers that they should explore more, produce more. It signals to consumers that they should switch away to other um, minerals, that they should consume less. And that mechanism works pretty well. But if you think about other environmental problems, we don't have that mechanism in place. And hence, we do have some very serious challenges. So, you know, the, the climate change is a classic example. There is no proper feedback mechanism through a uh, a global carbon price and we're not going to have such a price um, that would enable the market system to self-equilibrate. Same in many of the uh, challenges we face on biodiversity, on ecosystems, uh, on fisheries loss, on natural habitat destruction, where we are losing many of these big battles and we've got potentially very serious challenges ahead. So it's not to say that you know price um, mechanism solves all of these problems. It, it, it certainly doesn't. It's not, um, it's not a sufficient answer, but it, it does seem to help. I know you do a lot of policy work, Cameron. Can you talk about the role of different actors, the government, corporations, etc., in dealing with the environmental challenges we face? 
Um, yeah, well, the, the relative roles of government and corporations is uh, you know, often debated, as you say. And I think the starting point for me is not to see them as in opposition, because they're not. You want to have corporate action. You also need government action. And sometimes companies actually want governments to impose stronger environmental policies and environmental regulations so that they can take action that, that all of their directors and managers want to take, but it's difficult to justify otherwise. Uh, and equally, often governments want companies to provide some leadership so that the government can say to its citizens, you know, we've already, we're going with the grain here. Leading companies are already moving this direction. So it's a system, uh, an interacting system, and it, it's certainly not neither either or. Uh, in terms of what's working and, and what isn't, um, you know, I, mean, I think the 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 challenges that we are getting on top of are those where um the the impacts are more local and more able to be managed by uh, a public institution at the right scale of governance so if you've got a national problem then you can address it with a national government <clears throat> the challenge that we have is that quite a lot of these environmental problems are planetary they don't respect borders we don't have a global government uh, we're unlikely to get one and you know it's questionable whether one is even desirable in some sense um, so that means that we are relying upon <clears throat> the mechanisms of international cooperation between states uh, now corporations can help in those domains because many corporations span many countries and have interests across and around the world that they want to see um, you know, re respected. And I, I don't just mean interest in polluting the environment. I mean, most companies are starting to realize that it's not just that they have an impact on the environment, but they are dependent upon the environment and natural capital to be able to supply the products that their consumers want. So if you're uh, Pepsi or Diageo or uh, you know, a fast-moving consumer goods company and you run out of water or if you run out of, you know, if you have crop failures, then you simply can't sell any product. If you're Unilever selling, I guess, bird's eye fish fingers to consumers and fish stocks collapse, then you've got no product, you've got no profit. So th these big companies recognize that, um, that they have a very strong interest in natural capital being protected as well. So they can, some of them, serve as very helpful forces in supporting governments coming together and reaching agreements on these challenges that are transboundary. Now, I guess payments for ecosystem services is at the heart of some of this. And I just wanted to get your, your sense of this. And I know, again, it's an area where there's been quite a bit of debate. And, and, and one thing that some, some people have questioned is that, that in many cases, they don't seem to be real markets and um, that they're kind of constructed and they end up, they don't have any real momentum of their own and they collapse over time i was wondering what what what, what is your view on that and, and, and can you point to some uh, interesting uh, cases where your know, uh, payments for eco ecosystem services worked well they are good challenges and I, I mean i think it is hard to construct these markets um and to get them right there's an awful lot of detail even in the most simple of environmental markets so yes starting at the simple end if, if you take a uh, a challenge like ensuring um, that the air and the rain is not acidic uh, and the Americans led the way in, in creating markets to protect themselves against acid rain, so sulfur dioxide markets. 
you know, and they, they brought some of the best, best economists to bear. And of course, you know, there were lessons learned because you're not going to get everything right first time. And one of the intrinsic features of creating any market is that you don't exactly know how the private sector is um, going to uh, respond. Uh, that's one of the reasons you create a market because what you think the answer is might not be the answer. As soon as you stick an incentive in place, clever entrepreneurs and company directors will find some other way of reducing acid rain or, or reducing CO2 emissions that nobody had thought of. So one of, the, one of our kind of fairly regular experiences with environmental markets more broadly, um, before I get onto ecosystem service-based markets, is that um, you put the market in place, you let it run for a bit, and, and the prices crash. Uh, and perversely, while everybody thinks that's a sign of failure, it is actually a sign of success because, or can be, uh, because it's a sign that the private sector has innovated and come up with a solution that you didn't anticipate and the solution's been much lower cost. So the clearing price in that market falls to reflect the lower cost solution that they've found. Now, I say it can be isn't always the case. We've had instances um, you know, in the European carbon trading scheme where price crashes were, were not a result of innovative corporate activity, but a result, result of kind of, let's call it learning on behalf of um, European regulators as to how to, to govern these markets. So you know, better that those lessons are learned as early and as quickly as possible. Now, if you move from a simple market like CO2, which I'm sure some of your listeners are chuckling because they don't see it as being that simple, but it is it is simple relative to, say, a market for um, ecosystem services in water purification or in pollination or, or in these various other markets that are very, they're still pretty nascent. Uh, I mean, uh, probably a, a good example is the Murray-Darling Basin water trading scheme in Australia. It's a huge, just, I mean, it's where I grew up actually as a young boy till age seven, a uh, huge area of land kind of larger than Western Europe that is now having water priced. Now, and that that market has had its triumphs and its failures. Uh, it's had some recent corruption scandals. Uh, but overall, what it's doing is shifting the usage patterns of water across a very large spatial area from lower value uses to higher value uses. And it has enabled... Uh, environmental and other organizations to effectively buy rights for the environment, for natural systems, because once you've got a market, you can express whatever preference. Now, your preference might be for water to grow a particular kind of crop because that's crop valuable. But if you're an environmental NGO, your preference might be that you want water not to be used by agriculturalists and to flow all the way down uh, out to the ocean to provide um, services to, to nature along the way. So that's an example, a very big experiment, you know, certainly in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of value being um, affected. Uh, that while it has its flaws is is working reasonably well, but there's you know there's a long way to run, and I don't deny for a moment that it's quite difficult to get these markets right. Yes, yes, that's very interesting. Markets right. Uh, one, I guess, final uh, point on this to some degree. To um, I guess, and uh, Michael Sandel has you know written very uh, persuasively about the limits mm. to markets and 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 the question of putting values on 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 things and the kinds of things that are appropriate or not appropriate. And I suppose one of the uh, arguments has been that that you know nature 
is valuable intrinsically in itself um and then i, I some voices would 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 uh supporting i guess these kind of payments would would be saying that um to some degree that um that hasn't worked that it, just pointing to the intrinsic value actually uh hasn't been a, a success and therefore uh finding some mechanism of 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 uh pricing that that reflects the the scarcity and, and the value of these resources is important well i think that's right but i'd go beyond that i mean i'm, I'm familiar with sandel's arguments and i i think um you know he, he raises very interesting points in some areas seems to me he's spot on on the environmental side though i don't think he is um if your readers are interested in a in a fuller treatment i wrote a piece with simon caney a professor of philosopher uh in the royal institute of philosophy um supplement journal in 2011 called carbon trading unethical unjust and ineffective question mark and you know, so we asked those three questions and uh, concluded, no, you know, it's not unethical, it's not unjust, it's not ineffective, more or less, um, to all three. I mean, uh, more or less is, is a key phrase there, but there's some various nuances. But the, the point really is that if you think about what goods and services are, um, you know, should not or cannot, cannot be traded or should not be traded, or cannot be priced or should not be priced, you know, that, that set of four goods and services. Yet there are some that are very obviously in one of those categories, like um, friendship. You know, you can't really buy it. It's not that you shouldn't, you just can't. I mean, if you're buying a friend, they're not really a friend. Unless you're living in Japan, I think, uh, where, where there seems to be a market for that, for is it for, uh, for weddings? But yes, no, sorry, take your well, point, Jess. The, 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 the Japanese example, though, then stretches the definition of the concept, really. Uh, depends how you define friend, I suppose. But, but at least in my definition, if you're paying for it, it's not, it's not friendship. Uh, same, same with, uh, with love. And, you know, there's, there's black markets in, or indeed legal markets in sex, uh, in, in body parts where you can have a pretty, you know, make a pretty strong argument that, that those markets should not exist. Even if you can physically take a kidney out and sell it, you probably, you know, we, we shouldn't allow that because of the, even if there's a willing buyer and a willing seller, there are problems with, the morality of that act for society as a whole. So you can think about all of those different taxonomies and then ask yourself, well, where do resource markets fit here? You know, if I've got a market for tin or silver or copper or bricks or carbon or, you know, uh, I mean, other natural resources, uh, why are they in that category? And the answer is they're not. I mean, they're just, it's just a way of allocating scarce resources, including environmental resources and natural capital resources, among competing ends and so there, there is no fundamental immorality here when you're when you're putting a price on a resource now now even if you don't accept that if you're thinking listening to this and thinking that's rubbish um, you can turn to the more instrumental version of a market here so in in the health service in this country in the uk there's a limited budget now in order to work out how to spend that limited budget um, there is uh, a process by which the um, the relevant regulatory authority works out how much it's costing to save a life. And it has some numbers. If you can save a life for less than a certain amount, then you go ahead and you save the life. And, and if it costs you more, then you don't. 
Now, effectively, um, some people say that is putting a price on life. Now, I'm not sure that's, I mean, it is in some sense, but, but it's not saying that your life is therefore worth X million pounds. It's not saying anything about the worth. It's saying something, it's putting a price on it in order to allocate a set of resources. So you don't have to, you know, it's a mistake to attribute moral value or indeed full economic value to a price, which is actually being used as an instrument to achieve a social end. Uh, so I think I think that's a very important distinction, and it enables you to dodge quite a lot of these ethical debates if you if you wish to. That's very interesting. And uh, would you be worried about uh, what so-called uh, commodification of nature and the idea that you know, in some sense, that by putting a number on it, it becomes fungible, and therefore you can foresee in situations where you know people might trade off, you know, destroying part of a forest. And, for some other environmentally positive thing that they do. Yeah, no, I am I am worried about that, and that may surprise you. I don't know, but the um, I think, in fact, we just published a paper with the Green Economy Coalition la- late last year, 2017, called "The Wealth of Nature," and and this sets out you know uh, a good amount of thinking uh, on this area. And our broad point is that. For many areas of environment and, and natural resources, uh, commodifying them is okay because they're allowing allocations at the margin, trade-offs, etc., to be made. But, and there's a big but, there is a regime. Uh, there's, there, there are limits, and once you start to deplete a resource below some, get towards a threshold, then you, these trade-offs are are not run-of-the-mill economic transactions anymore. They are risking major discontinuities, um, crossing over major thresholds, and they become a question of, of governance and civil society less and less a question of markets. So you, you, don't, you don't want your... You wouldn't put the market in control of managing, um, you know, a, a threshold that was vital to planetary survival. I mean, that would be, uh, that would be foolish. But you would um, be quite comfortable having using the market as an instrument to allocate resources among competing ends when you're not bumping up against people being killed and uh, you know and, and entire communities being threatened. So our broad conclusion in that uh, paper is that there, there is a, a role for markets and a kind of um, a regime in which markets can play a very very important ethically justified role. And then there's then there's an area where actually you need a kind of governance override, uh, so that that political systems and civil society can come in and say you you can trade up to this point, but we're maintaining at least a certain quantity of this ecosystem or that ecosystem um, to to protect you know civilization effectively. I guess in part um, the governance you talk about is you, 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 there's different kinds of governance, isn't there? And I suppose in the UK with you know this privatisation of rail or something, the governance hasn't necessarily, um, or maybe there are fundamental issues there underlying about whether you know to what extent something like that works as a market like that. But you mentioned something very interesting uh, and uh, about this question of tipping points, and and I know in uh, the work of the Swedish Resilience uh, Centre and and in, in many other areas they tend to be uh, this. this 
quite a bit of focus on on, on uh, tipping points in a negative way. And I know in this the work you're doing at the post carbon transition that one of the ideas there is to look at some of the positive tipping points that might exist. And can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think it's not not an area that that's necessarily always uh, so so highlighted and and what your uh, vision and hope for that would be. Yeah, great. I mean, it's a, it's a, say, a very exciting program. And, and our exam question is, given that we're not going fast enough, what, what dynamics can we find in the socio-political economic system that are self-reinforcing? And we've seen some of them already. So we know that the more solar energy and wind energy is deployed, the more the costs come down, the more the costs come down, the more people wish to deploy it. So you, off you go on a nice positive feedback that you don't see in the fossil uh, technologies to anywhere near the same extent. And so that, that self-reinforcing dynamic, that, um, that process, means that we know that uh, the renewables are going to win in some sense in the long, long run because they'll just outcompete fossil. So we're looking much more broadly at the set of dynamics like that. So there are dynamics uh, within... Um, legal system, so you can bring a lawsuit uh, against company directors or against governments. Uh, if any of those gets up, you can imagine that more lawsuits will be brought uh, and uh, behaviour changes and the law has a reference point of you know the reasonable director. If the reasonable director's actions in response to risk changes, then and others direct, other directors don't follow suit, then you've got more potential for lawsuits. Or in the area of beliefs, if people um, take financiers where beliefs matter enormously, if you, if you believe that the future is going to be a zero carbon future, which of course it has to be at some point, then are you going to uh, back a new coal-fired power plant to the tune of billions if you need to get your money back with utilization factors over the next, you know, reasonable utilization factors over the next 30 or 40 years, you, there's a reasonable, in fact, likely chance that um, that coal plant's not going to be used as much as people thought it would. So you start to think, well, maybe this isn't a good investment. Maybe I won't invest. Maybe I'll look at you know, a battery or a hydro plant or a wind or solar or whatever instead, the money shifts uh, as you start to invest in solar. Initially, you know, five or ten years ago, you are thinking, well, this is a bit of a exciting new technology. It feels a bit risky. Never done one of these things before. You get some experience doing them and you realize it's incredibly easy, far easier than, your, than a kind of fossil-based plant because any... 10-year-old can connect up, I mean, a joke, but you know, it's, it's not difficult to connect up a set of panels and, uh, and wire them up and stick an inverter on the end. So the risk in that kind of electricity generation is very low, which means the cost of capital falls, which means the financing costs fall, which means it's cheaper, which means you can do more of them, which means it becomes cheaper, which means you can do more of them. So there are a whole range of these dynamics in the system, political, intergovernmental, um, consumer-based you know, I buy a solar panel, my neighbor sees it, I say I've had a good experience, they buy one as well. So the fusion dynamics that we as economists and social scientists probably need to get a better, better handle on so we can understand this transition to the zero carbon economy and understand what might accelerate 
Right, because I guess some of those you talk about, like uh, the solar and so forth, I guess a big influence there would be China. And China moves, I think they're moving on electric buses now, something like that. You can expect to see uh, some significant changes. But I guess some of those other uh, aspects we're talking about, you know, in, in terms of legal services or other uh, services like that, we've, uh, ha- ha- don't seem to be so uh, clear. And that's clearly a very interesting area. Yeah, now China is obviously a big, big mover, but uh, I wouldn't, you know, there are some successful legal cases being brought in this domain. So yes, um, yes, yeah, no, don't, I, don't uh, write that one off. Yeah, no, that wasn't my intention. No, absolutely. Now, um, I, I'm mindful of the time. Now, I was going to ask you a little bit about the inclusive green economy, but that's probably quite a big area to cover here. But I just wonder, um, you know, uh, is that a, 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 a interest to you? I mean, we, we talked about you know post carbon. I guess inclusive green economy has a different connotation as well um, and the inclusive part of it there. I'm just wondering, are there a couple of examplars there that you think are interesting? Uh, absolutely. I, I think you know, whether, whether you like it or not, if, if the post-carbon economy is not inclusive in the sense of it being equitable and fair and not leaving out big chunks of society, then the resistance to getting there will be substantial and you probably won't get there, or at least not very quickly. So these things go hand in hand, you know, as Nick Stern uh, famously and, and correctly keeps saying, we solve climate and environment and development at the same time, or we don't solve either of them. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. And the work that we're doing on, on this in the post-carbon transition program is looking at the what's frequently been called stranded assets in the past, but extending that idea to um, to stranded labor and stranded nations. So you know, if you, it's not just the coal plant that ends up not being used. It's all of the uh, workers on that plant and the workers in the supply chain leading up to that plant who don't have jobs anymore. Now, of course, there are more jobs being created in the renewables sector, more than those that are being lost because the renewables um, as far as we understand at the moment, are more labor-intensive ways of generating um, energy. So, so while there are uh, there may be, may well be a net jobs gain to some degree, although a, you know, any macroeconomist will tell you these kind of jobs estimates are, are fraught with problems because there are a bunch of other factors that determine employment rates um, and, the, and the environmental sector is not a huge one. But putting that aside, even if there is a net jobs gain, uh, the fact that there are some losers and some winners is, is of great importance socially and politically. So the question, our exam question is, how can you manage this transition in a way that creates uh, jobs and opportunities for those who have previously been working in fossil intensive sectors and now working in clean sectors or, or, or in other sectors of the economy? So I think that's a very important question. I mean, there are other big questions about equity and inclusiveness that, um, that that are relevant here. And and you can't kind of treat a 30-year transition in isolation from other things going on the, in the economy, such as automation, artificial intelligence, and uh, you know, other big trends that may shift the balance between capital and labor in production. So we've got some huge questions to answer there. We're not, we're not answering all of them, but there are other groups here at Oxford, including in the Institute for Economic, New Economic Thinking, that, that are trying to grapple 
with those big questions. And it's fun to be, and more than fun, I mean, it's very important to, to be around those groups and to, to get ourselves some answers. Yes, fascinating. Um, Ian Goff, I think, at LSE has done some work on this uh, aspects of this as well with the government policy and so forth, a very rich area. Right. Are you an optimist? At the moment, looking forward, there's so much going on. There's tremendous momentum. There's been, obviously, uh, current administration in the United States, uh, <laughs> an exception in the environment at the moment. Um, on balance? Um, yes. I mean, that's my kind of psychological nature. So it doesn't tell you very much. It's not a very good indicator. But I mean, I, I'd, uh, to put that aside, uh, go and have a look at Our World in Data, run by Max Roser, again, out of Oxford, um, which really charts just how much there is optimistic to be about uh, and if you look at the long game and you look at the world as a whole uh, humanity is doing incredibly well right now I mean billions well, coming out of poverty amazing technological progress many innovations that are improving things so not to deny the challenges that we have ahead that we're working on and and even the immediate and very big challenges of nuclear pr proliferation and even nuclear war. So it's, it is a, I'm not saying it's not a dangerous time, but, um, but if we can continue the grand sweep of history over the last hundred years, the next hundred looks like a pretty exciting place to be if we can survive it. Well, thank you uh, for taking the time today to share your vision and all the great work you're doing, Cameron. And I wish you the very best of success with it. My pleasure. Thank you, Fergal, for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.